This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequency 9625 kilohertz and the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on Channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumela Lezondi and in studio with me is Wissani Matebula and there's also Mosibudi Makura on sport. Your top stories. There's been mixed reaction to the South African government Al-Bashir court bid. A new research indicates that intimate partner violence is driving HIV transmission. In economics, Zimbabwe to introduce a law that requires senior public officials to declare assets. And in sports, a Springbok squad for the opening Rugby World Cup match has been announced. Here's Wissani Matebula with your news. Good afternoon. Seven senior political figures were kicked out of a Democratic Republic of Congo's ruling coalition for signing a letter telling President Joseph Kabila not to cling to power after his term expires next year. Minister of Parliamentary Relations Trifon Wamulumba says uh, the political bureau of the presidential majority had expelled the seven men. They include the planning minister and the first vice president of the National Assembly. The South African government says it's disappointed with the outcome ruling of the High Court in Pretoria relating to Sudanese leader Omar al-Bashir. The court has denied government leave to appeal against its findings that uh, the failure to arrest al-Bashir was unconstitutional. He attended the African Union summit in June. Al-Bashir is wanted by the International Criminal Court for war crimes. Spokesperson for South Africa's Justice Ministry, Mtunzi Maga, says they are yet to study the judgment and decide thereafter if they will appeal the judgment or not. That is not what we had expected given the firm view that we had, that the issues of uh, public international law needed to be ventilated. However, we will have to reflect as government on all the issues that have been raised in the judgment in a bid to determine whether the judgment is appealable. And the only way to do that is to approach the Supreme Court of Appeal, but that will have to be preceded by a substantive uh, affidavit where we are laying down all the grounds upon which we believe the court had if we are to take that decision. But at this stage, we will have to refer, reflect on the judgment. Zimbabwe's opposition MDC has asked President Robert Mugabe to step down after he read the wrong speech at the opening of parliament yesterday. MDC spokesperson Obed Gutu says 91-year-old Mugabe has become too old to rule the country and must immediately tender his resignation. Mugabe spokesperson George Charamba has blamed a mix-up in the presidential office for the error. The speech was the same as the one he delivered during a State of the Nation address on August 25th in which he pinned his hopes on China to help revive Zimbabwe's struggling economy. And Doctors Without Borders say the only way to stop the tragedy of refugees fleeing violence in Africa and crossing the Mediterranean Sea is to create safe and legal alternatives for the journey. MSF held a media briefing in Cape Town, South Africa, after launching search and rescue operations with three boats four months ago. 15,000 people have been rescued and more than 2,700 have died or gone missing in the sea this year. Berenice Moss reports. 
Linda Schurum spent almost two months on board one of the rescue vessels. She says they've never seen so many people resorting to reach Europe by sea, most often in boats completely unseaworthy. She spoke at length about her experiences, saying during one of the rescues which took place, 650 people were on board a craft which was about to capsize. She says during rescue operations there are always children on board, one of the youngest being a one-month-old infant named Blessing. Khurum says the current policies are untenable in the face of the situation. Berenice Moss, SABC News, Cape Town. And more than 3 million school-aged children in Sudan are missing out on education. This according to a report jointly released recently by the country's Minister of Education and the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF. It reveals that conflict is one of the primary reasons depriving children of the basic right to education. UNICEF representative in Sudan, Khert Hapeliara. The report is part of a broader UNICEF effort to um, better understand the problem of out-of-school children in the entire region of the Middle East and Northern Africa. The report indeed uh, did include Sudan. And the report uh, comes up with the conclusion that over 3 million children are indeed missed out when it comes to accessing quality education. There are several important reasons. First is, of course, the conflict. And finally, Kenya has completed its first inventory of ivory and rhino stockpiles in a bid to manage the elephants and rhinos heads the inventory were also kept smuggling the results on the inventory were released in nairobi by judy wakungu of the environmental department the total weight of the ivory stockpile held in the country as of 27th august 2015 is 137,679 kilos which is 137.679 tons and 1,519 kilograms, which is 1.519 tons for rhino horn. And that's your news for now. I'll be back at the bottom of the hour with your headlines. Thank you very much for sending your time at 17.06 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. There have been mixed reactions on the South African government's failed bid to appeal a decision that it acted unconstitutionally with regards to the Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir's departure from South Africa earlier this year. The High Court in Pretoria has ruled that it does not believe that there are reasonable prospects that the government's case can succeed in another court. Government has said it will be reviewing the decision, while the ANC has urged the state to approach the Supreme Court of Appeal. On the other hand, opposition parties believe justice has been done. Busichimombe reports. Judge Hans Fabricius of the High Court in Pretoria handing down his judgment. The traditional approach which our courts have followed in the past when confronted with applications of this nature is to determine whether there is a reasonable prospect that another court may come to a different conclusion. We are not of that opinion. And for the reasons stated in our judgment, 
President Bashir enjoyed no immunity from arrest or from prosecution under customary international law as a serving head of state. The crux of the matter is that the court had ordered that Bashir, who had been indicted by the International Criminal Court for War Crimes, be stopped from leaving the country when he attended the African Union summit. This in line with the Rome Statute, of which South Africa is a signatory. This did not happen, with various departments colluding to spirit him out of the country. Government argued it was constrained by issues related to the country's foreign policy. Justice Ministry spokesperson Tunzi Maga says the state is reviewing its options. That is not what we had expected given the firm view that we had, that the issues of uh, public international law needed to be ventilated. However, we will have to reflect as government on all the issues that have been raised in the judgment. We're in a bid to determine whether the judgment is appealable. And the only way to do that is to approach the Supreme Court of Appeal, but that will have to be preceded by a substantive uh, affidavit where we are laying down all the grounds upon which we believe the court had if we are to take that decision. But at this stage, we will have to refer, reflect on the judgment. The ANC has urged government to go to the Supreme Court of Appeal to overturn today's decision. The party has been vocal on the issue, going as far as to suggest that government should review its membership of the International Criminal Court, which many African leaders have accused of targeting the continent unfairly. The ICC has requested that Pretoria explain itself on the Al-Bashir matter, an issue that President Jacob Zuma said at a foreign policy briefing yesterday the state would be looking into. ANC spokesperson Zizi Godwa says the ruling party does not agree with today's decision. We think that if this decision is left uh, not appealed and is not corrected, it may set a very bad precedence, but also for the African Union, because AU on its own has got the same status, in our view, as any other multinational institution. And therefore, they are ruling with all the contradictions in terms of our obligation to the ICC and our obligation to the AU that our government has sought to clarify now. We need to appeal the ruling because it does undermine the African Union as a multinational institution. A number of opposition parties say they are delighted. The Democratic Alliance's James Self. We believe that uh, the government was right out of uh, order in firstly inviting President al-Bashir to arrive in South Africa and secondly consciously to decide to break the law. And we are very confident that when the matter is determined in court later this month uh, that the court will once more find against uh, the government for, for failing in its constitutional duty to uphold the rule of law. The Congress of the People has lauded the country's courts, saying they inspire confidence in ordinary people by performing their duties without fear or favor. COPE spokesperson Dennis Bloom has urged government not to pursue the matter. The government is going to waste taxpayers' money by to go to another court. Another court will still find that the government does not have any leg to stand on. We are saying that the government must resist in uh, going to another court. They must accept the verdict and the outcome of two courts now. We want to discourage them because it's taxpayers' money. It's not their money. The Southern Africa Litigation Center, which originally took the state to court, says should government approach the Supreme Court of Appeal, they will continue to fight. The reports by Busi Chimombe.
The Southern African Litigation Centre has welcomed ruling by the High Court, dismissing the government's application to leave the appeal against the ruling that the country was under an obligation to arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir when he attended the African Union Summit in June this year. The litigation centre had obtained a court order that the government must detain President Bashir for transfer to The Hague to face charges of war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide before the International Criminal Court. Bashir was in South Africa to attend the African Union or AU summit at the time, but was allowed to leave the country despite the court ruling. More from Angela Mudukuti, who is the International Justice Criminal Justice Lawyer at the Southern African Litigation Center. We're very happy with the judgment as it reaffirms the position that South Africa as a signatory to the Rome Statute and having domesticated the Rome Statute of the ICC had a duty and an obligation to arrest President Omar al-Bashir when he was here in June of this year. Now, the state is apparently allegedly free to approach the Supreme Court of Appeal with regards to today's judgment. What do you make of that? Well, we'll have to wait and see what the state does, but in terms of the law, they are well within their rights to lodge an appeal, and it will be up to them as to how they see fit to proceed on this matter. Now, yesterday, President Zuma announced that Omar al-Bashir could come back to South Africa in December this year to attend the FOCAC meeting. What do you make of the fact that he could be allowed back in the country again? Well, first of all, I think that would be highly regular, seeing as there is a court order that's ruled definitively that President Omar al-Bashir will be arrested should he be found in South Africa. And I think it would be a pity if that were to transpire, because once again we would see the executive and members of government disobeying direct court orders, which doesn't bode well for the rule of law in this country. And also, it doesn't exemplify South Africa as a constitutional democracy, and I think that is a serious problem. That was Angela Mutukuti, who is the international criminal justice lawyer at the South African Litigation Center, and she was talking to Ntlantla Matlangu. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 17.15 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. With me is Pumelele Zondi, and I'm going to be with you until 1800 hours this evening. In what many might describe as unheard of, South Africa's ruling African National Congress, the ANC, is pushing for the abolishment of the country's criminal defamation law. The ANC, in partnership with the South African National Editors Forum, SENEF, will at the weekend host a workshop focusing on what it describes as the the undesirably of 
undesirability rather of a criminal defamation and how and what action can be taken to get the constitutional courts to declare it invalid. Senef says criminal defamation is often used by powerful figures to silence the media on issues of national interest. Selina Dobong reports. The South African High Court in the capital city of Pretoria in December last year issued its long-awaited verdict in a criminal defamation case against Cecil Mutsipe, a journalist. At trial, Mutsipe had been convicted of criminal defamation and sentenced to a fine or suspended 10-month sentence due to a 2009 article he had written for the Sowetan, a South African news outlet. On appeal, the Pretoria High Court overturned his sentence, but maintained that criminal defamation was in line with the country's constitution. Drawing from that case, the South African National Editors Forum has in the past months advocated for the criminal defamation law to be repealed, saying there are enough remedial measures in the country to deal with false and unfair reporting of news. Moshe Monari is the deputy chairperson of the Editors Forum. We are not saying that the media should write what they like and get away with we are saying that there are enough remedial measures and forums that you can, if you are not happy with the accuracy, fairness, and other uh, concerns about an article, you can go to the press ombudsman, you can go to the um, to court and sue me. And there have been cases where uh, people warn against the media because they, f- they, f- they felt that they were defamed. But to take me to arrest me because I defamed you, this is 2015, this is post. You know, apart in South Africa, it really doesn't do that. The workshop on Saturday will be an inaugural event of many other such initiatives that will focus on key national challenges. The workshop is the brainchild of the ANC's legal research group established six months ago, which aims to work with the media and civil society on matters of common interest. Krish Naidu is the ANC's legal representative. Now, this is our first workshop. We thought it's something that's been consuming the media and journalists. There was an earlier workshop that we attended as ANC called by the Freedom of Expression Institute in April this year. And we expressed a particular viewpoint and we thought we needed to escalate, give some scale to this whole thing. So we went quite big on this. We spent a lot of money with public advertisements. We're having this function on Saturday where... And the idea is to get the public to phone in, give us their views. So at the end we can have a composite approach would SANEF and decide on a course forward. Now, what the officials are expecting out of this workshop is a progressive approach on this question of criminal uh, defamation. Uh, they mandated uh, Minister Jeff Kadebe to come on Saturday to the workshop. Also in December last year, the African Court on Human and People's Rights set up by the African Union ruled that prison sentences for defamation should be scrapped except in extremely limited circumstances. This follows an appeal case of a Burkina Faso newspaper editor, Isa Konate, who was convicted and sentenced for criminally defaming a state prosecutor. Moshwe says South Africa should heed that ruling. Look at the minority judgment there. Judge Mwepa, he wrote a minority judgment where he was saying that actually this criminal defamation had to go because the, the majority judgment was very technical in terms of, oh, we didn't do this, blah, blah, blah. So it was like we're endorsing criminal defamation, but 
I'm going to quit you on the basis that there's a technical thing, there's an element that was not satisfied. So look at that case. That was Mushweshwe Monare, Deputy Chairperson of the South African National Editors Forum and reporting for Channel Africa in Johannesburg, I am Selina Ntobong. You can give us feedback on Selena's story and other stories. You can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. South Africa's Deputy Minister of Energy, Tim Silimachola, has described the Democratic Republic of Congo as a strategic country to do business with. At the 7th Investment and Trade Initiative meeting that brings both Congolese and South African businessmen together in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Machola explained that a lot has improved and Congo is one of the fastest-growing economies Jean-Noël Bamwenze reports from Kinshasa. Deputy Minister Tembisile Majula has made the statement while the meeting between businessmen from both countries is underway here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. As she's the one heading the South Africa's 48-member delegation at this 7th Investment and Trade Initiative, Majula told the Channel Africa South Africa has been involved here since long and many things have improved. I think a lot has improved. We know that Congo is one of the fastest growing economies. It has nine countries that are neighbors of the Congo. So when Congo coughs, the whole region sneezes. So when Congo is at peace and is developing, everybody else can actually benefit from that. You would know South Africa has been involved in the Congo from the time of the late President Mobutu. We really believe, are convinced that when we have managed to stabilize all the issues that we've been involved in, for instance, in the training of the civil service in Congo, in building institutions, I always remind people that we must never forget that for hundreds of years, Congo was run like a private property. It didn't have proper state institutions from the time of King Leopold. So you actually have to build uh, institutions to run the state, to make sure that taxes are collected and that everybody else who wants to do business needs to do business properly, not the looting that has been going on which has not benefited the people of the Congo. So we are convinced that a lot of that work is happening and it is going to improve the lives of the people of the Congo. The Democratic Republic of Congo's economy has remained strong with the gross domestic product growth of 8.6% last year and indeed this country remains a strategic market and a partner to South Africa. That's what South Africa's Deputy Minister of Energy said. Ms. Majula explained that enormous potential exists between the two countries driven by different sectors, although there are so many challenges. Among the challenges that Congo has, like we also have, is that you can actually literally have mines in the whole country because they're so many minerals you have to choose and say okay here i'm not mining i'm going to farm but you have a serious energy deficit you have a serious deficit of infrastructure to allow congo to do business you can't drive from here to the east of congo the only way you can get there is by flying so it's a massive country Congo is the size of the first 16 EU countries that form the EU. 
they can all fit into the Congo. So it's a huge country, and we need to make sure it has the infrastructure. The breadbasket of the Congo is in the east. That food can only come here through the air, or it, it has to come through boats that take lots of days to come here. So we need the connection, we need the infrastructure to enable business in Congo and for Congo to be able to do business with the rest of the continent. The meeting between both South African and Congolese businessmen continues here in the DRC after the first leg here in Kinshasa. Participants have flied to Lubumbashi in the mineral-rich province of Katanga for more discussions on mining-related investment opportunities. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Africans have lost the core values of Africanism. This is according to the director of South Africa's Turquoise Harmony Institute, Ihan Sultan. The institute is a non-governmental organization promoting intercultural and interreligious dialogue and tolerance among people at grassroots level. In line with this, the institute annually hosts what it calls the Ubuntu Awards and Lecture Ceremony to pay tribute to and award outstanding South Africans that made their noteworthy contribution to dialogue peace and harmony in society. During the 2015 ceremony hosted last week in Johannesburg, the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Dr. Nkosazana Tlamini Zuma, was bestowed with the top Gulen Peace Award. Ihan Selton elaborates. Peace and Dialogue Awards was a part of the program of Ubuntu Lecture. So we try to, you know, acknowledge and encourage those uh, individuals and institutions who are making positive contributions to peace and dialogue in the country. When and why were they established? You know, it is one of the main objectives of our institution, Turquoise Harmony Institute. We try to basically promote peace, tolerance, and love, you know. So we try to uh, bring people from different backgrounds together, you know, to uh, practice dialogue. And the institution was established in 2006, and after two years, you know, so we, it's not a kind of recognition of those people, actually, you know, so we want uh, other people to see what they are doing, maybe they will be encouraged by their activities. So that's the inspiration of all these uh, awards. One would say Africans during colonial epochs dwelt in the spirit of Ubuntu, hospitality and humility. Where could Africans have lost it that even perpetrates the growing violence amongst each other? Yeah, I think Ubuntu is a very concept in African concept. But as you said, it is lost somewhere else. Uh, maybe it is because of the main issue is I think the, the education, the lack of education, the access to education is very limited. Uh, and people uh, started to forget about the practice of Ubuntu. Ubuntu is one of the main values of Africa. Africa can tell it, you know, to, to the world. But I'm sure uh, when we have, you know, more opportunities, if you promote education, and if you give more opportunities, you know, and create opportunities for education, the understanding of Ubuntu and the practice of Ubuntu will be much better. You are attributing the violence to the lack of education. But way back in the past, our forefathers, they were not educated, but they were able to practice Ubuntu. Yeah, it is not, also education is one aspect of that. But at the same time, so 
you know, the soul of uh, humanity because of effect of the, you know, the technology and the, you know, negative impact of media. And when you are not educated at the same time, so when all these are together, you know, so you are having much more negative impact on that. So the, in the past, our forefathers, maybe they didn't have, you know, formal education, but they had informal education, their traditions, their cultures. So they were forced to learn these kind of values at that time. What is the purpose of this award? So there are two main purposes. The one, as I said in the beginning, we want to recognize and acknowledge those people and institutions who are making positive contribution to peace and dialogue in the country and in the continent. At the same time, we want to encourage some of these people by giving this award, you know, to, to make them more efforts on this purpose. And maybe another purpose you can say, there are many people and institutions in the country, they have you know, resources, they have energy, they have time, and they have everything, but they don't have that kind of uh, objectives in their mind. Maybe by seeing this kind of works and what the people are doing uh, for the peace and dialogue, maybe they will encourage and they will start doing uh, similar works. Now lastly, in short, who are the other previous notable recipients of the Ubuntu Awards? Okay, and, and this year, uh, Kosovana Dinamini Zuma received it. Uh, last year, Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu received it. Uh, and the other ones, Gracia Marshall, you know, uh, the, the wife of uh, Nelson Mandela, Lake Nelson Mandela, Ahmed Katrada, Kweni Jimbala. You know, so these are the main uh, recipients of uh, peace and dialogue in the past years. That's the director of South Africa's Turquoise Harmony Institute, Ihan Sultan, on the line with Vusin Gosi. He's time for news headlines here as we send him Matebula. In your headlines this hour, seven uh, senior political figures were kicked out of uh, DRC's ruling coalition for signing a letter telling President Joseph Kabila not to cling to power after his term expires next year. The South African government disappointed with the outcome of the ruling from the High Court in Pretoria relating to Sudanese leader Omar al-Bashir. Zimbabwean opposition MDC asks President Robert Mugabe to step down after he read the wrong speech at the opening of Parliament yesterday. These were the stories we were looking at. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1731. 
Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are going to be with you until 1800 hours Central African Time this evening. My name is Spomele Lezondin. Thank you very much for staying with us. Now, International Lobby Organization, the Committee to Protect Journalists, will honor journalists from Ethiopia, Malaysia, Paraguay, and Syria with the 2015 International Press Freedom Awards expected to be held in November. The journalists, according to CPJ, have endured death threats, physical attacks, legal action, imprisonment or exile in the course of their work. The organization's East Africa representative Tom Rhodes joins us on the line to talk more about the awards. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Tom. Thanks very much. Tom, what makes these journalists deserving of these awards? Um, many reasons. I mean, it, it, it's a chance for us to highlight a bigger picture. Um, you know, Ethiopia is seen to be the leading jailer of journalists in Africa, uh, a point which seems to be missed by many state leaders. Uh, secondly, uh, the Zone 9 bloggers in particular, I mean, their, their case has been dragging on and on uh, without any genuine uh, evidence uh, presented against them. Uh, so it really is a, a, a prime example of, of the way the Ethiopian state targets the press. And, and the fact that it's also targeting bloggers, people that are online, uh, is also significant. Uh, let's talk about these Zone 9 bloggers. Who are they? They're, they're a, a group of young professionals, young, young men and women uh, of, of various uh, uh, Work profiles. You know, some of them are lecturers at universities, some work at a bank, uh, and they all uh, created this collective called the Zone Nine Bloggers. Uh, they're quite critical, uh, both of the government and the opposition parties, and uh, they've developed quite a following uh, amongst the youth of Ethiopia and also the Ethiopians in the diaspora. Um, bloggers, as you mentioned, that um, with the Zone Nine bloggers, they work in various sectors. They were not um, doing traditional journalism. So, do you think that um, social media and citizen journalism have changed the um, the way government reacts to information that's uh, that's available out there? Absolutely. I mean, you know, what what makes it interesting is, is you know you have to ask yourself why did they arrest. Uh, three journalists and six bloggers, um, especially when you consider the fact that, that the Internet penetration rate in Ethiopia is so low. I mean, one of the lowest in Africa. I, I believe the Intertelecommunication Union statistics said around 1.8 or 1.9 percent, um, you know, way below South Africa, for example. So, you know, what, what, why would, would uh, some Ethiopians blogging online pose a threat, and I, I guess what, what you know, authorities in Ethiopia and other parts of sub-Saharan Africa have realized is, is the potential of social media uh, to get stories out there, particularly those that might be censored, uh, and the influence they may eventually have. Um, and now, could you tell us more about the awards? How, why did you decide to start these awards? It's, uh, it's basically a, a way for us to highlight uh, certain cases that we've been monitoring and advocating for uh, over the years or over the months. Um, I mean, well, I'll be honest with you; it's also a fundraiser. I mean, we, we you know we hold it at a 
the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which is quite a renowned hotel in New York City, and it's a it's a black tie affair, and, and it helps us, uh, you know, get accrue some funds for CPJ. Um, but it, but mostly, it, it's a chance to to highlight uh, specific cases, and and then also, you know, to to try and humanize some of these cases. Uh, the problems that we often have is that we try and get the international community and the public interested about a journalist case, but that can be quite challenging when, say, a journalist from Ethiopia and, and uh, our audience could be in Europe where they have very little knowledge of the place. Mm. Um, SCPJ, what do you think about the state of, journal- of uh, threats to journalists in Africa? I'm sorry? Um, threats to journalists in, in Africa, do you think that's on the rise? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and particularly in the Eastern Horn region. Um, you know, I, I know that NGOs are, are routinely giving you bad news to, to justify justify their existence, but honestly, in, in the case of East Africa and the Horn, uh, threats and attacks are on the rise. And, and I think that's largely to do with a whole number of elections recently, uh, and not to mention countries facing uh, insecurity, such as South Sudan, uh, Somalia, and, and, and now Burundi. Mm-hmm. Um, media freedom in general? Yeah, um, in general for the, for the continent or globally? In general, globally. Yeah, um, you know, it's always hard to, to assess these things, but, uh, you know, I, I guess if these can be ways to assess it, I mean, we're seeing sort of some of the highest numbers of journalists jailed uh, ever recorded in, in CPJ's history, and we're seeing some of the highest number of journalists killed uh, ever recorded, and that goes back from 1992. Um, so, uh, you know, it, 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 there's some pluses and minuses. I mean, in, in a sense, uh, we're seeing that, that uh, state actors and others are starting to look at the media as, as sort of targets of, the, of a conflict and not necessarily simply the messengers, and that's a dangerous precedent. Um, but on the other side of the coin, you know, we're seeing a lot more new media, especially from social media, and I, I believe that citizens are getting informed from a whole new slew of sources that weren't available in the past. So it's, you know, again, it, it, it's plus and minuses. All right, thank you very much for joining us, Tom Rhodes. Thanks a lot. Tom Rhodes is the East Africa representative for the Committee to Protect Journalists, and he was joining us on the line from Nairobi in Kenya. Hi, I'm Kwasaza Nadlamini Zuma, the chairperson of the African Union Commission. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. In this week's health slots, we focus on a new driver of HIV outcomes, intimate partner violence. New research indicates that intimate partner violence makes HIV-positive women sicker, increasing the rates of HIV transmission. The study conducted by researchers from South Africa, Britain, and the United States has recently published in the scientific journal AIDS. Jane Matebula reports. 
Intimate partner violence is a health concern that is attracting increasing attention. In 2013, the World Health Organization found that one-third of women across the globe experience intimate partner violence. This number grows among women living with HIV, where some studies show that 65 to 94 percent of women report violence. Although it has been confirmed that violence between intimate couples leads to HIV infection, for the first time, researchers have now been able to see that violence consists Consistently impacts on the health of women living with HIV. For more on these findings, I spoke to a lead researcher from the South African Witwatersrand University, Abigail Hatcher. We reviewed all of the studies that have been conducted up until now about women living with HIV, and we found that across the studies that exist, the connection between intimate partner violence and HIV adherence is very strong. In particular, we found that When women experience intimate partner violence, they have half the odds of staying adherent to their medication, and they also have markedly lower viral load suppression. And as you know, viral load suppression is a very important thing to achieve because it helps your own health, but it also helps lower the risk of transmission to other people. So our findings were rather strong, and we know now that IPV, intimate partner violence, is strongly related to the health of HIV-positive women. Speaking about viral suppression, I understand that it's also connected to the 1990-90 target, a new buzzword in the HIV field, which is an ambitious target to help end the HIV epidemic. Now, how will this phenomenon of intimate partner violence have an impact on the realization of this target? It's a great question because 1990 basically means that we want to try to get all of those who are living with HIV tested and on care and treatment and healthy. Now, in South Africa, for example, we only have about 26% who have achieved something called viral suppression, which means that they are healthy and they will no longer have a risk of giving the virus to anyone else. So 1990-90 says we need to get that number up from 26% all the way up to 73%. We're not reaching that target in South Africa, and intimate partner violence could be one of the reasons why, at least for women. Yes, you've picked up on my next point. I was about to ask if is the inability to reach the viral suppression mark perhaps one of the driving forces of the high rate of HIV infection in sub-Saharan Africa? It certainly is. Now, that's not something that we actually found, but interestingly, some colleagues at the Medical Research Council found that very strongly, intimate partner violence leads to new infections among women. What we're saying is, what does violence do once women already have HIV? And we think that if viral suppression is lowered, it's quite possible that these women might be transmitting HIV to more partners going forward. So as you can imagine, it's in our interest to address this violence, not only for the health of women, but really for the health of South Africans across the board. How exactly does violence stop women from taking treatment? Is it because, are you saying that perhaps sometimes the violent partners prevent them from going to the hospital to get their treatment? Or how exactly? It is the best question because that's what we need to figure out next. We didn't unpack how in our review that we're speaking about 
However, I do have some sense of that based on the other literature that people have been working on, and I think there are three reasons how. It's exactly what you said. A partner might control the woman's behavior, and he might actually say that a woman cannot go to clinic or cannot take her medications. He might do things such as flushing the HIV medication. But another important reason is, like we were talking about before, women might not disclose. And when they don't disclose, it makes it very hard for them to do things, like take a pill every single day. So they might hide their status. The third reason, I believe, is mental health. We know that violence is very bad for the mental health of women. And whenever a woman feels anxious or depressed, the likelihood that she's able to keep up with this special medication that helps her health is very low. So I think the third pathway could potentially be mental health, that these women are feeling worse mentally and emotionally, and then they're not taking their medication because of that. And what about the partners themselves, the, the men? How are they affected if women do not adhere to treatment? Sure. You know, we've not looked at that just yet, but I think that's a really important question because a lot of the men who are violent may not even know that their partner is living with HIV to begin with. One of the strategies that women use to stay safe is they actually don't tell their partner that I'm living with HIV. As you can imagine, if they don't tell their partner I'm living with HIV, then how can they convince their partner to do special safety precautions like using condoms? So my sense is that a lot of these men who enact violent behaviors might not even know that their female partners are already living with HIV. And those women might be hiding it from them on purpose. So what's next for reducing partner violence, which now seems to be vital in the fight against the HIV epidemic? We've got to include intimate partner violence in this care and treatment services that women receive for HIV. So as you know, South Africa has some of the best rollout of treatments for HIV and some of the best access to testing. What we need to do is make sure that our nurses and our lay health workers who do that testing and provide that care and treatment know how to screen and to address partner violence. So our team's working in Johannesburg to try to develop a model that nurses could lead where they briefly provide help to women who do experience partner violence. And my sense is if that model is successful, it's something that we should scale up to really help women who are living with HIV and with violence. That's Abigail Hatcher, researcher from the South African Witwatersrand University. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Johannesburg. 17.45 Central African Time. Here's Osani Matebula with the Economy News. Good afternoon. Uh, the world's largest brewer, AB InBev, has informed rival SAB Miller that it intends to make an offer to acquire the British firm, although no proposal has yet been forthcoming. SAB Miller, which is the world's second biggest brewer, says it has been informed that AB InBev intended to make a proposal but didn't have any further information about the terms. Shares in SAB Miller were up 20%, while AB InBev was up 9%. 
In Zimbabwe, will introduce a law that requires senior public officials to declare assets as part of measures to tackle corruption. Critics and the opposition accuse President Robert Mugabe of turning a blind eye to graft, especially amongst close allies and ministers. They say endemic corruption is one of the reasons that foreign companies are not investing in the Southern African nation. Zimbabwe was last year ranked 156 out of 174 countries on the Transparency International Index, which measures public perceptions of corruption in public institutions. And former South African President Thabo Mbeki has met uh, Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta in Nairobi. Mbeki briefed Kenyatta on the outcome of a meeting held in Kenya to push for global leaders to do more to stem the illegal outflow of capital from the continent. Sarah Kimani reports. Mbeki held talks with President Kenyatta and Kenya's Cabinet Secretary in charge of Foreign Affairs, Amina Mohamed, at State House in Nairobi. The meeting focused on illicit financial outflows and the efforts by the Mbeki-led committee to push for more action to stop the illegal outflows. Reports estimate that the continent currently loses at least $50 billion every year to illicit financial outflows. Mbeki says he has received commitment from African heads of state that they will work towards the repatriation of assets and money stashed abroad. Africa has in the last 50 years lost close to a trillion dollars in illicit financial outflows. Sarah Kimani, SABC News. South Africa has rejected suggestions uh, that uh, the promotion and protection of investment bill will deter foreign investment. Multinational companies say they will find it difficult to do business in the country should the bill be enacted. It seeks to replace bilateral investment treaties South Africa has with other countries. The Department of Trade and Industries Director General, Lionel October. We are in the field every day working with these investors. So I want to emphasize that we will continue to roll out this red carpet to foreign investors because it is essential to building world-class industries. The facts indicated very clearly that by a very wide margin, all foreign investors prefer South Africa. We attract the bulk of investment onto the African continent. And South African retail sales grew above expectations by 3.3% in July after expanding 3.8% in June. Although this above what the market had expected, it reflects tough trading conditions in the country. Economist at NetBank, Joannis Koza, expects a growth in the retail environment to be subdued in the months ahead. We expect a slowdown in the numbers. I mean, if you look at the seasonal adjusted numbers, uh, sales growth by 0.1% over the month. And uh, over the quarter, the three-month period to July, no growth was recorded. I mean, that all uh, indicates the uh, general weak conditions in the household sector um, being hurt by low uh, confidence. So it shows that uh, the general conditions in the household sector are still persisting. Financial indicators, the dollar at 13.47 South African rands at 10.24 Botswana Pula and 9.82 Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.64 to the British pound and 0.88 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,108, platinum down $958 and Brent crude oil static at $48.27 per barrel. And that's how it's looking.
Thank you very much for signing your sports news now with Musibuti Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with rugby news. South Africa Springbok coach Heineke Mea has named his 23-man squad for Saturday's World Cup opener against Japan in Brighton. Notably, there are four black players in the starting 15, Zach Kirchner, Loazim Vovo, Brian Habana, as well as the Beast Mtawarira. Kirchner, who hasn't featured much over the past 12 months, will start at fullback ahead of Willy LaRue. Fly half Andre Pollard will be on the bench, and Pat Lambie will start at number 10. Loose forwards Willem Alberts and Skog Berger got the nod with George Deljaga as well as Victor Matfield at lock number four and five respectively. The squad ball as expected be led by Jean de Villiers who is still recovering from a broken jaw he suffered in his size a shock defeat to Argentina last month. Meanwhile, 2011 runner-ups France received a warm welcome upon their arrival at London's old Royal Naval College. French captain Thierry Duchiat says his team can't wait to get their tournament underway. It's something very special for a rugby player to, to live a rugby World Cup ceremony. And um, it's also the, the beginning of the World Cup, so it's some, something very important for us tonight. Um, after New Zealand, it's here in England, uh, the home of rugby. We have to live this great moment. On to cricket news, Melbourne cricket players have benefited from the tour by New Zealand after they moved up the batsmen and bowler rankings following the latest update from the International Cricket Council. It was really a productive series for a number of local batsmen, with Sean Williams moving up five places to 51st. There was also gains for Hamilton Masagadza, who moved up one place to 57th, while Sakanda Raza also moved 12 places, just a place behind Masagadza. Zimbabwe's, um, Zimbabwe's standing in ODI cricket team will remain in 11th position with a ranking of 45 points. They gained 10 points on 10th place Ireland, who are now on 50 points. This is something that excites Zimbabwean team cricket manager, Love Mobanda. From our side, Zimbabwe cricket, we are happy that the team continues to improve. But more, more importantly for us as Zimbabwe cricket is the fact that we are getting game time for the boys. Our gripe in the past uh, has been that uh, we do not have uh, as many matches uh, for the boys as other full member countries. Zimbabwe will play Pakistan next month as the visiting team will arrive next week. The two teams will face off in the ODRs during the first week of October. All games will be played at the Harare Sports Club. Zimbabwean team cricket manager Lav Mobanda tells us more about the upcoming tour. Uh, we are continuing with the uh, uh, talks with other full member countries uh, to see what else we can do because uh, also a focus for us is the uh, ICC World 2020 Cup and uh, so we need to get the players to play a lot of uh, 2020 matches so that uh, they get in shape for the World Cup. Finally, it was another good day on the court for South Africa's top bullshit tennis women's player, Hotazo Monjane, and she got her Toyota Open international campaign and fans off to a winning start. Karen Nosh, wheelchair tennis South Africa's general manager, brings us all the details. Really superb match, um, coming through that 6-1, 6-11. We'll set up a match against Deirdre Dunford um, of the Netherlands. 
Eredrake, one of the up-and-coming players, and wanted to be one of the top uh, players from the Netherlands in the near future. So also top 10 players, so it should be a really tough match for KG tomorrow. Well, those are your sports news at the hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-five Central African time. Let's take a look at our top stories this hour. There's been mixed reactions to the South African government Al Bashir court bid. A new research indicates that intimate partner violence is driving HIV transmission. In economics, Zimbabwe to introduce a law that requires senior public officials to declare assets. And in sports, Springboks squad for the opening rugby world cup match has been announced and that wraps up africa digest for this hour from myself spumela lezondi producer luanda maume technical producer adrian kenny and the rest of the team thank you very much for listening emails info at channelafrica.co.za info at channelafrica.co.za you can send us SMSs to plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. You can send us tweets to Channel Africa One. It's Channel Africa Numerical One on Twitter. We leave you with Aye by Quela Debza, Femikuti and Black Motion. Many of my people are dying. Terrorists 
fighting Families are crying Well, I tell I walk into my life They ask me to blow a few lines with my six Who happens to be my girlfriend That probably 